And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Of all the debates that are going on in Washington uh, these days in the wake of a new administration and a new reality, uh, the debate over uh, women's health, women's rights, uh, are front and center. And uh, front and center in that debate is Cecile Richards, uh, the leader of Planned Parenthood. Uh, We sat down the day before President Trump took office to talk about uh, these battles and uh, where they may lead. Cecile Richards, welcome. Uh, Good to have you here. You know, um, I've done a lot of these, and I always sort of uh, ask people how they came to be interested in what they do and how, and normally it's politics. I don't have to ask you that. Uh, this was like you, you, a, a requirement of birth uh, <laughs> to some for extent. you. Talk about growing up in your household. Sure. No, I like to say I was sort of born under a lucky star. I was uh, – Or a uh, Texas star anyway. Texas star, yes. yes. Proud to be a Texan, uh, if not <clears throat> somewhat displaced. But – no, my mom was Ann Richards, who um, and my dad was Dave Richards. I grew up in. I was born in Waco, which is also bragging rights, I think, uh, but really grew up in Dallas. And my folks were just involved in every movement that came through Dallas, Texas. It was a very, very tough time then. You know, I I was a young, very young um, person when Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, and I think that really, in some ways, do you uh, remember that? Absolutely, um, mainly because. Uh, they let out school, um, and we lived in uh, down uh, in Park City near SMU, and it was very conservative. I mean, my parents were sort of um, not in, in outliers, complete outliers, and it it was it just destroyed my family. I mean, my mother was at the luncheon uh, waiting for the president to arrive, oh, my. and my father, what he was a lawyer downtown, so he was waving at the motorcade uh, right as the president's car uh, rounded the bend um, into Dealey Plaza, and then of course with the um, Oswald uh, Ruby assassination, it was it just felt like Dallas had really come unhinged, and I just remember as a child it was a very frightening time. In fact, my parents pulled us out of school and went camping uh, because they just they were worried that the world was really coming apart. So mm. that was a really important part of my growing up, but. As important was it? My parents were just involved in every movement. I mean, it was. The Everybody knows person. your mom, mm-hmm. and I want to talk to you about sure. her. But uh, talk about your dad. Yeah. So my dad was is still is an unreconstructed liberal, and he, you know, in that era was a civil rights lawyer. He was uh, was defending conscientious objectors to the Vietnam War. He was working for labor unions, which again were. You know, really, uh, really on the left fringe of Dallas, Texas, and we eventually moved to Austin, where which was a much more hospitable yes, climate. Yeah, right, exactly. Uh, where and then my be- parents began, you know, taking all of us as kids to march in wars, you know, uh, marches against the Vietnam War, uh, and doing every countercultural thing that existed. But that was really my upbringing, and so my father was certainly as important uh, in my upbringing as my mother. And in fact, I became a union organizer right out of college, largely because of the influence of my father. 
And uh, the, the Austin scene was not just politics, right, but music. Everything. I remember going with my parents to this old uh, – it was an air, airplane hangar that was, had been abandoned with a guy named Eddie Wilson. And uh, this is just as we'd moved to Austin. And he said, I have this vision. This is going to be the greatest music hall ever in the state of Texas. And, of course, Eddie opened the Armadillo World Headquarters, which did become – really the epicenter for music and my upbringing. I mean, we saw everyone. And uh, that, of course, lives on today. Austin now is, yeah. you know, one of the music capitals of, of the of the country. Willie Nelson was part of all of that? Absolutely. Willie, I mean, you just can go through the list. And and it was funny because I mean, no one ever used to come to Austin. But once, once Eddie opened uh, the Armadillo, uh, every big act came through town. You know, it was really, it was great. It was a great time. You, uh... You went off to college. Yes. And then, um, but you knew you wanted to be a, a labor organizer from the start? No, no. I just knew I wanted to be a troublemaker. I didn't really <laughs> know what kind. I didn't, uh, I mean, I started really early in junior high school wearing a, a, a black armband to school uh, in Westlake High School, which was unheard of, and being called the principal's office. And that was my sort of my first awakening to, boy, I'd never even met the principal before. I thought, this is, this is really something. And I went off to college and got involved in the divestment movement uh, in South Africa. I was involved in um, f- attempts to stop the uh, Seabrook nuclear plant. You name it. Every issue that was, that was on campus at Brown, I got involved in. And then eventually when I, when I graduated, I decided to move to the Rio Grande border and organize garment workers. I should I should have uh, asked you before that um, about your mom's involvement in politics and how early that started. I know she was involved in the campaign for Sarah Weddington, who Correct. everything comes around full circle. Prop, Isn't it incredible? A, a signature person in the in the movement right. for reproductive rights. Uh, the lawyer who who brought the Roe versus Wade case. Um, but you, when when did your mom sort of actively get involved in politics? Well, so in those days, I mean, she had raised all four of us, and she was one of these housewives who had so much more to give, and but there weren't a lot of opportunities. So actually, when Sarah Weddington was going to run for the state house, no guys wanted to run her race, and so mom said, "Well, I'll do it." And that was her first really professional job uh, was running Sarah's race, and so as kids, we all got involved. And then she liked it so much, she decided that she would run. And she eventually ran for county commissioner, which, of course, was unheard of for women, uh, and won, and then became state treasurer, and then, of course, made an important uh, and really bold move to run for the governor of the state of Texas and, and was governor for four years. And you were involved in that campaign. Yeah, we all were. I mean, this was back in the days when campaigns were kind of, you know, family come home. I mean, my husband and I were living in L.A. at the time with a young daughter, but we packed up the U-Haul and pulled up stakes and came back home and helped uh, work for mom. And we're proud to live there and during the time of her administration. I mean, she had from the outside this larger-than-life uh, persona, uh, I mean, as big as Texas. Correct. Uh, t- talk to me about her as a person. That she was had her own struggles. Uh, Absolutely. She had her own struggles and – Again, was really public about them, I and mean, she was a recovering alcoholic, and talked. Were about Were you aware it. of that when you were a kid? Absolutely, because we all went through. Uh, we went to treatment with her. We uh, 
it, but again, it was interesting, David. It was way before the time that going to treatment was something that people talked about publicly. It was extremely shameful, and uh, the understanding about uh, addiction and alcoholism was very low. Uh, and it was a really tough time for her. My, you know, my parents split up um, at, after that. It was it was um, it was really difficult, but she felt so it was so important to be human and to show her warts and all. And so she talked publicly about her her recovery. I still am stopped by women in airports all across America who say, "I remember your mom because she helped me get sober." Yeah, you know, I, I I've talked about this often on this podcast because I had issue, issues in my own family, uh, mental health issues. Uh, these these are um, these are illnesses. Absolutely. And uh, the more we talk about them as illnesses uh, and not as stigmas, uh, people are going to get help, and it's going to save agree. lives. So uh, I so admired her for for making it a cause, right, uh, uh, of hers. So, but beyond that, yeah. um, talk talk to me about her as a personality. Well, she she did have a huge personality, and again, even I I, I think back on if she, if in her era uh, when she was raising all of us, if she'd had more opportunity, I mean, she could have done uh, a lot earlier on. So I think by the time she finally did get to express herself through politics, it was like a lot of pent up <laughs> energy, and uh, and she had a lot of gifts to give. Uh, but she was always the center of whatever was going on, and. And in Texas, and again, I think in a day when women had certain prescribed roles, she was particularly um, new and different. And I think today a lot of people say they wish politics was like it used to be, where people just sort of were more authentic and actually spoke to people. She, you know, I know she did a lot of work with a lot of politicians and always said, look, if my, if my mother back in Waco can't understand what, what you're saying, you've got to really think about it. And I think she did. She really believed that public service was a calling and that there were people that were depending on you. She, uh, I mean, it's hard for people to imagine in uh, 2017 a liberal uh, woman from Austin uh, getting elected governor of Texas. Um, obviously, Texas politics has changed, but how did she? How did she manage that? It was a conservative state even then. It was a conservative state even then, but and I think you know, looking at what's happening today around the world, she was a populist. She was. She talked. You know, she grew up uh, with uh, Depression era parents who scrapped and saved, never uh, graduated from junior high, worked all their lives. And she had that same kind of ethic. Uh, I think she had an ability to reach people across party lines, ap- across economic lines. And I think that was uh, a large part of her success. Um, you know, she was always really popular, I think, when she got was defeated, you know, in her reelection. By bid. George W. Bush. Exactly. Uh, I mean, so many things. It's so interesting now uh, how history, you know, forks yeah, look, in the road, yes. right? Forks in the road. But uh, even even when she was defeated by George Bush, she was still very popular. They just thought she was too liberal, <laughs> yeah. which she probably was for the state of Texas. Tough year as well. It was a very tough year. That's right. Yeah. Uh, what do you think? she would have uh, advised Hillary Clinton uh, this year were she 
sitting at her side? I mean, she was, of course, a friend of Hillary's, and she would have been the strongest. I knew Hillary back. Hillary was around Texas in the early 70s helping uh, in the presidential campaign of George McGovern, I think. That's right. And, of course, mom was very close to President Clinton. Who was uh, also there. Yes. So there was a – I mean, they had – and again, the Southerners, I think they they shared a lot. Uh, I think she would – she would be the first to say, it's always going to be the toughest for the first woman. It's just going to be so tough. And look, I think uh, Hillary was um, as tough a, uh, tough a competitor and candidate as you could expect for, from any woman running, running for office. Uh, I think she would have been really proud of her um, for making the race because it's always easier not to do it. And someone had to be the first. I thought of it because you mentioned this populist instinct that your mom had. Was that missing from the campaign? Oh, I don't know if it was missing. I I mean, I think part of it is what the news covers. And so that's a whole nother story. The news was very different back then. I don't think that the certainly mom's race wasn't covered in the same way. It's interesting, though, David, I, I and actually I wrote an article about this, the comparison of my mother's race against Clayton Williams. Yes. Uh, a candidate who, you know, was a businessman. He, he had certain Trump-like qualities. Well, it was very interesting. He was a businessman, had ever done anything in public service. And really, that was his entire you know, background, uh, made jokes about rape, uh, was – you know, it was – and, and in, in many ways, th- those comments and the fact that at the very end of the race, just the last week, he revealed that he'd never paid taxes or hadn't uh, recently – that was what ended his campaign in many ways. I mean, if you ask why mom won, yes, remember, you know, it was like yeah. a lot of things that kind of came together at the end. And uh, so there's a very different time uh, to think that some of these very same issues came up and, and seemingly didn't, didn't penetrate um, with, the pop, with the voters. Do you think um, that Texas um, will, will – there's always been this talk – there's this mythic thing that Texas is mm-hmm. coming. Texas is going to turn purple. Texas is going to – ultimately turn blue because of the demographics of the state. Do you, do you think that? Yes, but it's going to take a lot of work. And I think one thing you can't underestimate is, well, two things. One is um, the Democratic Party has been practically non-existent now for many, many years other than in some pockets. And so it means a lot of building. It's a huge state. It's not like t- turning a state that's, uh, that's small. And you have to have a candidate who can win in the um, in East and West Texas uh, in the suburbs. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Democrats now do very, very well in the urban areas. In fact, there was just a big sweep in, in Harris County and Houston. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you have to – the campaign has to be about a lot more than, than the urbans. That day is coming. And definitely the demographics are changing, but we have extremely low voter turnout in the state of Texas. I think there's a whole population of folks who just aren't in a pattern now of voting because I think they probably think it doesn't matter and it doesn't make a difference. Uh, folks are really have to change that. Uh, but I feel encouraged. I mean, we've been, we do a lot of work um, in Texas now and young people there are motivated and excited. And I think there's a real opportunity. Tell me about the uh, Texas Freedom Network and because I know that was one, your handiwork and, and really sort of part of what led you to where you are now. Well, I started the Texas Freedom Network after mom lost because I, like a lot of folks, thought, 
well, we're going to have to really now stand and organize and fight for things like public education and uh, women's rights. And also it was the time, David, which I know you remember, when uh, the Christian coalition became sort of this incredibly effective political machine, particularly in the state of Texas. And many folks give them credit for George Bush's victory. I mean, they sort of delivered this very strident kind of right-wing message. And I knew that wasn't what Texans were about. And so we organized clergy and uh, folks who were involved in public schools, school board members, to make sure we were trying to push forward moderate policies at the State Board of Education. It was my first nonprofit to start, but I kind of looked around and I thought, well, if no one else is going to do it, I need to. And it's now been around for many, many years and I think does great work uh, on areas of education, women's rights, LGBT rights. So it's a it's a, a lasting, it's a little bit of a lasting legacy and I'm very proud of them. You ever think of running yourself for office? I mean, along over the years, I know you, you have this lofty position now, which we will get to. <laughs> lofty. I'm not but, sure everyone would uh, say that. <laughs> but uh, did you uh, did you think about uh, running? You got a you've got a a great name. You've got all you got all the moves. Uh-huh. Oh wow! Coming from David Axelrod, that's that's pretty huge. I have to rethink this. Uh, <laughs> I sure I've thought about it, and folks talk to me about it sometimes. Actually. I do feel like there are people who are running for office is sort of in their blood and that's what they want to do and that's the way they want to make a difference in the public sphere. And then I think there's folks on the outside who run important organizations and advocate for important issues. And that's always been just sort of where I felt most comfortable, you know, and I know we'll get to it, but it's I'm really proud of the work we do here. And in looking back at this last eight years with President Obama, I feel like it was so important to have a sort of an inside-outside um, operation here and being able to work with that administration to make progress for women was was crucial. Yeah, I want to talk to you about that. Um, but, you know, I raise it because uh, one of the things that worries me right now is um, that a cynicism wins and that people uh, begin to look at politics as um, uh, an unappetizing yeah. way to pursue change and to make a an impact and that that's to me uh, corrosive to democracy i worry about um good people saying you know this mm-hmm. this isn't for me and that's sort of antithetical to what this whole deal is about you know we need the ann richards mm-hmm. of our time to step up. i'm not trying to persuade no, you i'm but 100 percent, i completely agree and i don't the fact that i haven't run for office has nothing to do with Anything you just said, yeah. uh, it was really more. Where do you? I think sure. for all of us who believe no, you've in had, you're having a big social justice is where do you make the biggest impact? I actually have been though somewhat buoyed by the number of women in particular who have now filed to run for office uh, since the election who seem to be encouraged by that. So, but you're right. We have to nurture our democracy. This is not a given thing, and I think that it's um, yeah. If, if folks uh, abandon the field then that would be a really bad sign. That's what I say about the state of Texas. It's not, in some ways, you know, we're not a red state or a blue state. We're a non-voting state. And that's when you really don't have a democracy. You uh, uh, you and your husband, Kirk Adams, who's a brilliant organizer uh, in his own right, came to D.C. Um, and, uh, and you began to get involved in this uh, movement. Talk about that transition. Well, we sort of left Texas because we kind of felt like we'd done what we could do there. And, you know, I had three kids and thought I wanted to see the world. It was a great 
great time to be here. Um, and I had the pleasure of working for not only for Ted Turner for a while, doing some organizing work there uh, when he and Jane Fonda were, were uh, doing really fascinating work through their foundation. And then I got to work for Miss um, Pelosi. At the time, she became the highest ranking woman in the House of Representatives. And that was that was an exciting time. So I feel like I learned a lot from our time here. You've worked for some big personalities, <laughs> not just raised by one, but work, work for mm-hmm. some Ted Turner. Yes. was interesting. Uh, you know, back in uh, 2008, uh, when Obama was running for president, uh, Ted Turner gave him a contribution. And they finally met. And Ted Turner said, Barack, I just want you to know I gave you a contribution and I'm not asking for anything. And uh, Obama put his hand on Ted Turner's shoulder and said, Ted, you don't need anything. <laughs> so I'll, I'll, I, I love Ted Turner and he was always – and you're right, maybe I'm attracted to big personalities, but he was so outspoken, uh, would say the same thing to – to you sitting here today as he would on CNN, which, of course, always, you know, was interesting. His creation. Yes. CNN. Yes. Right. So, uh, yeah, no, listen, big personalities make things uh, make things happen. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back with Cecile Richards. So let's talk about where we are uh, today. First of all, let's talk about the last eight years. Um, there's a lot of reckoning going on now about what is the impact of the Obama years and his presidency. You had a very close look at this from your position here at Planned Parenthood. Talk to me about your sense of those years on the issues that you care about. I mean, profound impact on women and on women's health and access to health care. I mean, it's and interestingly, as we're now seeming to you know relitigate again the Affordable Care Act and health care coverage in this country, some of the most popular things that happened in the ACA, as you know, because you are such a huge part of this, were the leveling the playing field for women, making sure that women didn't have to pay more for health insurance than men, uh, making sure that we could get in coverage even with pre-existing conditions. And then, of course, a hard-fought but important battle over getting preventive care covered for women at no, no cost, and uh, now 55 million women who have access to no-cost family planning. And which isn't just important because that's a right now that was established under the ACA, but we're at a 30-year low for unintended pregnancy in the United States of America. It's one of the proudest things I've ever gotten to be involved in and because it makes – is making every day a difference in the lives of women. What are the metrics on preventive care in terms of people actually accessing it? It's one thing to say they have access to it, but uh, do you see in – uh, participation rates, uh, the impact of the Affordable Care Act in terms of people taking advantage of, of free preventive care? Well, I'll just give you – I mean, there's probably a million ways to, to measure it. But one is that women uh, actually in the very first year of the Affordable Care Act, before even all of every – you know, because there were a lot of folks that were getting grandfathered in. In the very first year, women in America saved $1.4 billion on birth control pills. And so, which is very interesting because now, of course, we have a nominee for HHS who said women have never, never, cost has never been an issue. And we see at Planned Parenthood every day, women who were making choices between birth control pills and groceries or rent and young women in particular. So the, 
and the number of women who write in to us or post their picture of their zero copay uh, on Facebook, I know, um, and we see at our health center level, the number of women who are now accessing better methods of contraception because they don't have to worry about cost and can choose what's best for them. You um, obviously have become a target in this uh, ACA uh, debate and in this repeal effort, defunding of Planned Parenthood is um, is part of the the mix uh, in the Republican legislation in Congress. What impact would that have on the services you provide? And talk about the services you provide because sure. um, it's much broader than simply. Um, uh, birth control, certainly right. abortion services, which are proscribed in terms of federal right. uh, funding. Right. No, I'd, I'd love to. I mean, we are uh, we provide health care to about two and a half million folks every year. And the vast majority of the services we provide are preventive care. So they are family planning, birth control, but also cancer screenings. Um, for many women, just their well woman annual exam is at Planned Parenthood. We provide... Uh, how, how many women would you say... Well, uh, I mean, two and a half million women, so or two and a half million patients, about 10% are, are men, uh, so almost almost all women, uh, and about a million and a half are on Medicaid. And, and that actually, to get to the heart of, I think, your, your question and what's at risk here, when Paul Ryan said the other day he was going to put defunding Planned Parenthood onto this um, ACA repeal, uh, I want to just be super clear. There's no line item in the federal budget for Planned Parenthood. We don't, it's not like they can just take us out of the budget. We actually just get reimbursed like every other health care provider. So it provider. would proscribe states from reimbursing you? Every state. And, it would, and, and essentially what it would do, David, is say to women – I don't care if that's your health care provider. I don't care if this is the place you've gone to for years for your preventive care. You can't go there anymore. And, uh, you know, this is – it would be – I guess what I was asking before yeah. was how many women go there for basic sort of wellness, uh, you know, for their annual exams and so right. on? I mean, I don't have the, the total numbers, but uh, upwards of 2 million. Mm -hmm. and, and that's in every state. I mean, this is, the, this is one of the other things that – you know any senator who's voting to end the ability of folks to go to Planned Parenthood is literally eliminating access in in their in their own state. Even Paul Ryan, I mean, women that are going to see Planned Parenthood in Racine wouldn't be able to go anymore. And and look, you know what he said, um, Speaker Ryan said those services can be provided at other through other facilities through health clinics, community health clinics, and so on. Well, and I mean, it's actually. Absolutely untrue. And the community health centers have said repeatedly, and he knows this. I mean, I, I don't know if he's intentionally misrepresenting the truth or what, but they have repeatedly said, we cannot possibly absorb the patients that Planned Parenthood takes, takes care of. Uh, and that's true all across the board. And I look at my home state of Texas as a cautionary tale where they did end the women's health program. They have blocked women from going to Planned Parenthood for things like cancer screenings. Uh, we are now, we've seen a doubling of the maternal mortality rate for women in Texas. And this particularly is hitting low-income women and women of color, particularly African-American women. Uh, we've seen uh, less women being able to access birth control. And it's simply because the healthcare system and the dismantling of the public healthcare system particularly if they overturn the ACA, it is going to create havoc, particularly for women in this country who have the least access to care. And Paul Ryan knows that. Uh, 
I th- and why, that's why I think we're seeing this outpouring. I mean, you can't even get a phone call into his office anymore um, because of the uh, outrage, uh, and including among voters who voted for uh, President-elect Trump. This isn't what they voted for. I mean, polls show even half of his own supporters support federal funding for Planned Parenthood. Many of them are our patients. Well, President-elect has been a little ambiguous about his own feelings on this. Do you have, have you had any conversations with anyone uh, associated with the administration on this issue? No, I haven't directly at all. Uh, but you're right. I mean, I think this is, this has been, this has been a um, motivating issue for Vice President-elect uh, Pence. He is really, to me, the one who has been driving this entire agenda. He's been against women's health, women's rights in every way. That was his crusade when he was in Congress. Uh, and I think this is an agenda he's driving. So I hope that uh, the president-elect and those around him will recognize that ending access to care for the w- biggest women's health care provider in the country uh, is only going to send us backwards at a time when we're making huge progress on women's health. Let me ask you, do you uh – Someone said to me, a woman who I respect said, you know, in a way, the name Planned Parenthood, and I know it's a good brand. It's a, it, you, you guys poll well uh, in the parlance that the president-elect appreciates. Your ratings are good. But um, uh, this woman said to me, in a sense, uh, the name uh, is, is limiting. It's misleading because uh, Planned Parenthood does more than just um, reproductive rights stuff. I mean, you know, helping with women's reproductive rights. It, 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 it's it's really more holistic in terms of its approach to women's health. I mean, have you? Does that make sense? I mean, it is. We are in a big. I mean, I I, I know what you're saying in the sense, but you're right. There is enormous equity in the name Planned Parenthood because a couple of reasons. One, one in five women in this country have been to Planned Parenthood, and I hear from them every day. Uh, and they're a large part of, I think, uh, the folks who have been phoning and calling the administration about concerns about uh, and ending care. And we are hugely um, popular, and not only among Democrats. Um, I mean, the folks who come to us for care come without a party label. They come because they need affordable, high-quality health care. And uh, Consistently, I mean, when I look at folks like uh, Speaker Ryan who say they want to end Planned Parenthood, well, Planned Parenthood is a lot more popular than the U.S. Congress. I can tell you that. And well, uh, so, <laughs> so <laughs> look at any poll, any national figure. So are cankus sores, you know. Yeah. I mean, Congress isn't, te- Congress isn't polling very well right now. Well, but it just I think that it's important. Again, this is because, again, for taking apart, taking away the, the – not to this, compare Planned Parenthood to Kankakee. Please, I know, I know, I know you didn't mean that, but <laughs> no, I think that is what's important is when when Speaker Ryan or politicians say they're going to end access to Planned Parenthood for women and increasingly for men in this country, that just sign- signifies putting their politics ahead of the health care of women. So when a woman who's gotten her breast cancer detected at Planned Parenthood and therefore has gotten treatment and now is cancer-free makes a testimonial, that's who they're talking about. They are playing politics. Well, that's why I asked you about this marketing thing because um, the depiction of Planned Parenthood, obviously, by by opponents, is very much about the issue of abortion. Mm -hmm. Um, And it it, – the suggestion is that this is principally the – 
what Planned Parenthood is there for, and the fact that Planned Parenthood provides these services uh, to women that are much broader, that go to fundamental women's health issues, um, gets lost in the shuffle. What I'd say, David, is we could name our same ABC Healthcare. It wouldn't matter. Yeah, yeah. I'm not suggesting you rebrand. And the folks who are against. I'm making a larger point, which is how do you get across the fact that – it is, the, the, you know, the, what those, the whole scope of what Planned Parenthood does. Sure. And we do that every day. I mean, I feel like that is like part of our mission. But that is why that is why our support is so high in this country, because actually women do know what we do. Uh, and I think there's always been, frankly, a disconnect between, I think, of the sort of folks who follow the news all the time and, and are in the sort of the, I would say, the Washington bubble, if you will. And then when you leave here and you go out to Kenosha, Wisconsin, or you go to uh, Indiana or the states where we are in many ways the provider of the primary Just picking provider. two at random. No, it's true. I mean, Indiana, <laughs> we've been, we have always been one of the most important uh, providers of women's health care. And so folks understand what's at stake. Again, I just, I think there is a D.C rest of the country divide, okay, which will not surprise you. <laughs> let, let's uh, No, I've experienced that. Let's uh, right. set that aside. But let's talk about the issue of abortion, because that's mm-hmm. obviously, that's the central to the critique of uh, Ryan and Pence and uh, opponents. Um, although, f- and, and, you know, the answer obviously is federal funding for that particular uh, procedure is proscribed. Ryan said, well, money's fungible, so it really doesn't matter because it's a backdoor way of funding uh, funding that. What, what do you say about that? Well, it's not fungible, and he knows that because we get reimbursed just like every other health care provider in this country. For uh, procedures. That's right. And we right. get reimbursed for cancer screenings. We get reimbursed for family planning. We get, get reimbursed for STI testing mm-hmm. and treatment. And that's what's, that's what's at stake. But I, one, let me just make sure I get on the record. We are a provider of abortion service. Uh, we think it's important that it's safe and legal. It's been a right that women have had uh, for more than 40 years in America. And people feel strongly. And frankly, there's there's stronger support for Roe versus Wade now than there has ever been. So I don't want to shy away from that. But I also think it's important, David, to recognize that uh, Paul Ryan and uh, Mike Pence and folks have voted to end the National Family Planning Program, which, if you would think about it, is actually the most important program we have to prevent unintended pregnancy and the need for abortion in this country. So I don't I just don't accept that it, that this is all about um, safe and legal abortion. I think it's also about women's reproductive health care. In fact, we just saw in the in the hearings yesterday with the nominee for the secretary uh, of HHS, he doesn't support birth control for any woman uh, in this country. That is, I'm sorry, that is at the heart of this debate. Ninety percent of women in this country use birth control at some point in their lifetime. This is not a uh, a small matter, and it is an economic issue for women. It's an it's a healthcare issue for women, and frankly, it is for men as well. So, I think we're talking about an agenda that is way far past uh, simply abortion. You know, access. on that point, uh, given the nature of our system and looking at the right. Senate, hard to believe that they could. Um, implement a vision like that uh, because it'd be hard to get 50 votes in the United States Senate 
for something like that. I mean, I presume there are people on the Republican side, particularly uh, women on the Republican side, who would be resistant. What can the HHS secretary do administratively to implement uh, a vision like that, proscribing people from getting access to um, to birth birth control? Well, I think it's... I mean, there were all kinds of programs that HHS runs, everything from sex education to Title X. But beyond that, David, I think what's going to be so important and why, frankly, um, Secretary Sebelius uh, was really important and Secretary Burwell is that's the main agency. Under the Obama. Excuse me. Yes, under under President Obama, um, two women who were very committed to women's health care and make all kinds of decisions every day about programs and funding and implementation of the Affordable Care Act. As you know, I mean, this was absolutely crucial. Congress passes a bill and passes legislation, but you have to have you have to have someone really advocating and leading for uh, women's health care. And that is going to be I agree with you. I think this is enormously unpopular. Uh, And I just I was just left Detroit where there were 10,000 people in the cold rallying to save their health care access. And a lot of them were Planned Parenthood people as well. So I think they have in some ways joined these two issues. It's interesting. The Affordable Care Act has never been more popular according to the polls now that – what's the old Joni – don't don't always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone. Absolutely. Um, What what do you – how do you think this thing ends, this this debate over ACA? I think we're seeing – I think we're seeing – the most effective pushback uh, ever on this issue, and it is directly related to folks getting access to health care. And that's what I'm hearing from people. It is no longer a theoretical bill. It is that they're now recognizing their kids aren't going to be able to stay on their health insurance, or that Congress just voted to end the birth control benefit, or that women are no longer protected uh, from pre-existing conditions. It's becoming very personal and very real. And I think that the Senate is going to have a really hard time now crafting an alternative that is going to – and again, I think President Obama, I heard him the other day say, show me something better. Yes. And I'll be the I'll be your. It's first interesting champion. because you you've we now we've heard the president elect. I guess he's backed off a little bit, saying I'm for health health insurance for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the 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 leaders of Congress themselves say, well, we're not going to take away the right of people with pre existing conditions to get coverage, or we're not going to take away mm-hmm. 20, uh, insurance for kids under 26 on their parents' insurance, and and they list a bunch of stuff. That is sort of central to the ACA, and it's very hard to fashion something uh, that covers all of that uh, and and yet removes the things that they have targeted, mandates and so on. Exactly. And look, they just voted to to undo every single thing you just listed. The Senate, just in the dead of night, the other night in their voterama, voted to, voted to end all of that access to care. Um, I have I – mean, They would say – Yes, that they would say we we voted to uh, repeal the ACA, but we're going to replace it with something that that uh, preserves all of that. Well, uh, that's not what the, I don't think that's what the American people believe. And um, can I sh- tell you my favorite Barack Obama story about this? Because we can uh, trade. Go ahead. I mean, you and I look. We've we've gone through these these yeah. years together, yes. and I'll never forget after in the in the second election. Um, I think you and I may have even been there together during that second debate. This issue came up of with with President Obama and and Governor Romney about access to Planned Parenthood, actually specifically, uh, and that 
President Obama supported uh, Planned Parenthood and the care that we provide and that Mr. Romney wanted to, as he said, get rid of Planned Parenthood. A couple of days – so and this was in front of 70 million viewers and it was a – you know, he mentioned it two or three times. Two days later, a woman came into our health center in Houston because she had a lump in her breast and she didn't have a doctor. And the clinician said, I'm really glad you came to see us. We can definitely take you today. And she said, but can I ask who referred you? And she said, well, I heard President Obama say the other night on television that, that you do breast exams and that's why I'm here. Yeah. That's why we're here, and that is why I believe um, the work we have to do now, it isn't about a theoretical bill. It is about real people's lives and the potential for real women to lose life-saving care, and uh, that's what the ACA has been about. Well, we'll trade stories. I was uh, in the summer of – you know, I was a president's political advisor, obviously, and I, um, I had concerns about mm-hmm. uh, the ACA – at, when he was deciding whether to move forward or not, because my job was to look after his political sure. well-being. And uh, I uh, told him that I thought, um, you know, seven presidents had tried, seven presidents had <laughs> failed. Mm-hmm. We were in the midst of this economic crisis, and it was a big piece of business to undertake. Uh, and he said, uh, yeah, but w- what are we here for? Mm-hmm. He said, are we supposed to draw down – are we supposed to admire our – put our approval rating on the shelf and admire it for eight years? Or are we supposed to draw down on it to try and do things that are important for people in the country and the future? He said, I think we have to do it. And then in the summer of 2009, things got um, – were as tough as I feared. And I went in – not to persuade him because I – Actually, the reason I worked for Barack Obama was because he listened to me so little on stuff like that, <laughs> and I admired him for it. And um, and I have a child with a pre-existing mm-hmm. condition almost from birth, mm-hmm. and I almost went bankrupt <laughs> when I was a young man, a newspaper reporter, because of her illness and our inability to get right. different insurance. And um, so I understood all that, but I went into his office and I said, you know, we're taking on water on this. He said, yeah, but I just got back from Green Bay and I met a woman 36 years old who had uh, uh, two children, a husband. She and her husband both worked. They had health insurance, but now she's got stage four breast cancer and she's terrified that she is going to die and leave her family bankrupt because she's hit her lifetime caps. And he said, that's not the country we believe in, so mm-hmm. let's keep fighting. And he kept fighting. That's right. And um, I, uh, you know, I cried the night that the Affordable Care Act passed because I knew that there were families that didn't, that wouldn't have to go through what my family went through with our baby. And um, I thanked him mm-hmm. for that. And he said, that's why we do the work. And, uh, you know, it's something I'll always yep. uh, remember. But I'm with him. Uh, if someone can fashion a system that's better mm-hmm. or does the same thing, um, that that that's the point is to get people the services absolutely uh, that they need. I've got to take a short break here, and we'll be we'll be right back with Cecile Richards. Just to tease out the point, because you're in the you're in the hub of the fight here. Um, where does this go from here? Because it's not clear what the replacement is. It is clear that they're committed to some sort of – I mean, the, the repeal that you spoke of was a letter of intent, essentially. Right. It didn't do anything. But it required them to do something by, I think, January 27th. Right. Uh, and where, where do you think this goes? 
I, I think they're going to have a very, very hard time meeting that deadline with a bill that people are going to be comfortable with. And I certainly have talked to Republicans who are deeply concerned that without a serious replacement, uh, that they can't repeal this. And I hope that's true because, look, the Affordable Care Act has done a lot of wonderful things. I think we would both agree there it was imperfect and yes. it needs improvement. Yeah, and we should all question. put our shoulder to the wheel to do that. But the thought that somehow just throwing it out and starting over is going to work is – I think it doesn't – it's not credible. It's not credible with American people. And as you say, if, if – I know one of the biggest indictments of this of Washington and certainly this Congress is this hyperpartisanship and somehow that it's like just some sort of tally of wins and losses. I believe we're hearing from more people, real people, about how this is impacting their lives, and I hope that that is going to have an influence on folks who think somehow they're just they're that repealing the Affordable Care Act is just some kind of political payback. I mean, what the story you told about President Obama is exactly right. This is about public service. People in this country, and I think we saw this in election in this election, are desperately hoping that the government will look out for the little person and folks who are struggling. And repealing the Affordable Care Act will not do that. And women, I mean, in many ways... I mean, the irony is a lot of uh, the folks who've been helped by this are in Kentucky. That's right. And uh, states uh, where some of the Republican leadership comes from and districts where some of the Republican leadership comes from because uh, working, uh, you know, uh, low-income working people um, I have been big beneficiaries of this. Kentucky had one of the highest rates of uninsured, and now uh, it's been reduced. It's interesting, though. You know what happened there, which is they rebranded right. Obamacare and called it Kentucky Connect, and that was very popular. Obamacare, not so much, even though they were the same, <laughs> exact same thing. thing. Yeah, it's a it's a lesson in branding. I'm sure the president elect appreciate would appreciate that as a brander. But, right. Uh, no. 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 That's true. Look, and we uh, I know we talked a little bit about it earlier, but we absolutely are seeing and the the I think outpouring of women who are concerned not only about the repeal of the Affordable Care Act, the repeal of, of birth control, and the uh, repeal of and um, access to Planned Parenthood is is um, hits very. Uh, profoundly, particularly on women who have the least access to health care. I may have said this earlier, but I'm not sure. You know, at, But right now, we have 55 million women who are covered for family planning at no cost for the first time. They're getting better birth control. Uh, we're at a 30-year low for unintended yeah, pregnancy. Yeah, you did say that. And yeah. we're at a record low for teenage pregnancy. The thought that we would actually flip and go backwards is just unthinkable. You are a um, – you, you are showing your – shrewd political pedigree because it goes to the core issue of uh, of that you you made the case earlier if you want to prevent um, unintended practice and abortions mm-hmm. uh, this is a this is a very important point let me talk to you about the issue of abortion and I want to be really frank about this I mean I'm totally I, I believe in a woman's right to choose but I think like most Americans, it's a tougher it's not a it's not a clean cut sort of issue. It's not a clear issue um in the sense that um there are all kinds of moral questions associated with it. One is a woman's right to control her own decisions and her own her own body. The other is the the other side of the debate and uh which is this uh, you know, there are many Americans who you know, have 
issues with religious concerns and moral concerns with abortion. And um, I think most Americans live in the middle, which is they believe in their pro-choice, but they're but they're they find abortion uh, a disturbing thing. Um, how do we take the sort of how do we have that dialogue? How do we square that uh, so that um, you know? We're not, the the sort of most strident voices are not dominating uh, the debate, you know, which is you're a baby killer, or you know you want to ins- or you or the other guy wants to uh, enslave women or tell women you know what to do with their bodies. How do we have a a more thoughtful debate about this? I think is incredibly important, and you're right. Abortion is a deeply personal issue. And I think that this the sort of bifurcated political, you know, either, you know, you're either pro-choice or pro-life. Those those are, frankly, terms that are irrelevant, I think, to most people's lives. And as you say, people can see a lot of gray. And what we have found at Planned Parenthood, and, and we don't even use the pro-choice language anymore because it, it does. It sounds like it's a political term yeah. that doesn't really uh, – but it is about the uh, important – uh, ability of women to make their own decisions about their pregnancy. And it's amazing if you talk to people or whether it's in focus groups or just, you know, in a conversation about and acknowledge that a, abortion is a is a complex, deeply personal topic. You can just see folks' shoulders relax. And the fact that they aren't going to now be forced to choose one side or the other and can understand uh, how personal it is. Most people, the vast majority of American people, regardless of their own personal feelings about abortion, believe it is essential for a woman and her family to be able to make these decisions about pregnancy. And, of course, you hear stories all the time about really difficult sometimes decisions that women have have had to make. That's what we believe at Planned Parenthood. It is that it is a decision that is so important that it can't be made by a government uh, or a politician. Um, You'll appreciate this as someone who follows politics. You know, two of the states, two of the most conservative states in the country, Mississippi and South Dakota, actually tried to ban abortion, say it would be illegal. And if you polled in those states, they would be pro-life states. But we actually went on the ground and did have conversations with folks door to door and in community halls and in churches. And at the end of the day, those states voted overwhelmingly against banning abortion because they believed that it was an important decision that women could make and that politicians were not in a place to do that. And I will tell you, and you started with this, there, the support in this country for access to family planning, um, access to Planned Parenthood uh, is overwhelming because people believe if more young people had access to information, sex education, uh, access to birth control services, we could reduce unintended pregnancy um, and uh, uh, and abortion rates would go down. And actually, that's what we're seeing. We're actually now at a the lowest rate of abortion since um, since Roe. You said earlier that um, that uh, Paul Ryan Pence were uh, acting um, on the basis of politics. Um, is it possible that they uh, are acting uh, out of what they, out of a, a belief structure of their own? They may be, but they're, I believe they are elected to represent the people in their districts and the people of the United States of America. So I fully respect whatever Mike Pence's personal feeling is about abortion. I don't think he's ever going to have to deal with an unintended pregnancy personally. So to me, it's important that he actually think about uh, who is 
who are his constituents? And uh, again, I believe, if, you know, if – well – if more folks in Congress could get pregnant, I think we wouldn't be having these arguments um, about pregnancy and birth control and access to services. So I can respect their own personal feelings and also hope that they will respect uh, the rights of women in this country to make their own decisions uh, about their bodies and about their future and about their pregnancies. But if someone were uh, a supporter of uh, uh, of, of abortion rights of mm-hmm. uh, and had a district that was uh, – uh, a majority opposed. You would you make the same case that that they should um, they should be um, pro pro life as it were because their district is pro life. Well, fun- even if they morally believe that that's wrong, I fundamentally believe that the right to choose, if we say, or the right to make your own decisions about pregnancy, is just a fundamental American right, and. It doesn't mean forcing your views on one side or the other. It means respecting the right of the individual or the family or a woman with her uh, her religious uh, advisor or mm-hmm. her her spouse or whoever to make that decision. I just think that's a fundamental value. And again, I point to these states where you would say if you polled them, they were pro-life, yes. you know, South Dakota and Mississippi, where – Actually, if you look at how people vote and what they truly believe, they really More believe nuanced. that. Yeah, they yeah, want, they, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think that's where we have to allow people to live in that space and make their own decisions, do the work we can to provide health care access, particularly for folks who have it the least, and let them make their own best decisions. The more restrictions that are passed by Congress, by these states – it's not making women healthier. It's not even reducing abortion. It's actually making women less safe. And that's what I think this, the American people don't want to see. There is a, going to be a Supreme Court nomination shortly. Uh, we know the president-elect has interviewed at least one candidate, uh, Judge Pryor from uh, Alabama. Uh, what are the implications of that Supreme Court nomination? And they're huge. I mean, this was a huge issue in this election. And again, just going back to your 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 former boss, I can't overstate the profound impact that having two additional women on the Supreme Court has already made. Having women, and I've been, I've I've had the honor of getting to be in the Supreme Court for arguments where women's voices are now in the room in a different kind of way with Sonia Sotomayor uh, and Elena Kagan, and now joining uh, Justice Ginsburg. Uh, so yes, the the Supreme Court. Uh, is going to be is pivotal. Um, a lot could of us- there, how much could uh, how 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 much is at stake in terms of law that could be? I mean, Roe versus Wade itself. Absolutely. Could, could, could you see? No, just Judge Pryor has been outspoken mm-hmm. in his opposition to it. He used very strong language about it. I mean, could you foresee a set of circumstances under which uh, Roe could be undone? Absolutely. I think that I mean I think Roe versus Wade is, um, ironically, there are so many there's so much judicial precedent in, in many other areas where people feel like well that's the established law of the land. I would argue that's true for Roe as well, but I think the the position of both some justices on the court and some of the nominees that that uh, President elect Trump has mentioned um, as possible replacements on the court uh, are are willing to undo decades of rights of women. I don't think they're going to do it without a fight. Uh, I, I mean, we have seen just such an outpouring of women uh, 
I think we'll see it on Saturday as well, uh, and men who believe that this is such we, a We should vote. point out there's a women's march on Washington the day after the inauguration. Correct. We're, we're speaking the day before the inauguration. Mm-hmm. One of the judges who uh, uh, President-elect Trump has talked about is a woman, uh, mm-hmm. Diane Sykes from Wisconsin. Would would you, you said it's important to have women's voices on the court. Would that give you comfort? Well, I'm not going to go through any, you know, particular nominees. I mean, we at Planned Parenthood will absolutely look at any nominee and what their positions are on women's rights and we'll take a take a strong stand uh, and educate folks uh, about it. Of course, I think it's I can't leave this topic without saying what an enormous injustice it was that President Obama mm-hmm. was never allowed uh, to make uh, his appointment to the well, court. you know, and I this it just, is, it's a con- the concern I have is just the precedent of holding a Supreme Court seat open for a year, correct? Uh, and correct. which was clearly antithetical to the spirit of the Constitution, and and the and the the nominee that President Obama chose, uh, Merrick Garland, was very much a consensus correct uh, choice. So. Uh, yeah. Uh, I think that the long-term damage of that will be felt because now a precedent has been set uh, and the court has been politicized in a way that it hadn't been uh, before. Let me. We need to wrap up, but I wanted to ask you um, what the impact on Planned Parenthood has been in terms of interest, support, and so on in, in the aftermath of the election. We've been overwhelmed with um, not only young people who've never made a contribution to an organization sending in their 10 or $20 check, uh, literally hundreds of thousands of people who have made contributions. But additionally, and I think what has been really just stunning to me is in the two days after the election, we saw a 900% increase in women trying to get into Planned Parenthood for an IUD, which is mm-hmm. a long-acting form of birth control. I think it reflected their fundamental understanding that the Affordable Care Act was covering those uh, birth control services for the first time that may have been out of uh, um, out of their economic range before, and they knew that Planned Parenthood uh, would help them. Uh, that to me, women are women are worried, and uh, women are uh, I think and men are coming out of the woodwork to not only support Planned Parenthood. But I think also push back on this idea that there was any mandate in this election to overturn uh, decades of women's rights and to end access to an organization that just celebrated our 100th anniversary. Um, uh, so I and, and again, I, I think it's important that it's not just the usual suspects. I mean, even we just actually did a focus group with Trump supporters who are Planned Parenthood patients who are deeply disturbed that this administration would would actually instead of focusing on draining the swamp and uh, and creating jobs which is really where i think what they were hoping for that instead you know the first two days after the um the new congress is sworn in they take aim at planned parenthood cecile richards thank you for being here i i hope this doesn't sound strange or patronizing but i can't help listening to you think that your mom would be really proud of oh, uh, what you've what you've done so <laughs> she taught us well you yes. know and i think a lot of women uh a lot of women remember her even young women and i hope we're i hope we're carrying on her legacy in a good way well uh, i think people can make their own judgment based <laughs> on what they just heard so thanks very much thank you 
Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.